Shalom, brothers and sisters. I'm Brother Sid. I have Brother Christopher assisting me today. We have a detailed lesson prepared for our brothers and sisters internationally. The title of today's lesson will be Out from the Shadows. Out from the Shadows. Brothers and sisters, we will scour the scriptures from the Old Testament to the New, brothers and sisters, to show you that Everything that transpired, that everything that was documented in the Old Testament was fulfilled in Christ. And not only was it fulfilled, he magnified it, brothers and sisters. He magnified it. So we're going to show you how you cannot, you can't operate utilizing the New Testament without the Old Testament. You don't understand the New Testament without the Old Testament. We're going to show today, the Bible will show that Christ followed the law. He followed, when we say the law, that's the first five books of Moses. He followed the Torah. The Bible is flawless when you're utilizing the volume of the book. Remember, he said, I come in the volume of the book. I know many Israelites who don't deal with the New Testament, don't deal with Paul's writings. I know many Christians who don't deal with the Torah, don't deal with the Tanakh. We'll find out today why they are both incorrect. We're going to Hebrews, the 10th chapter the first and the second verse in the title today, Out from the Shadows. Hebrews 10 verse 1. For the law having a shadow of good things to come. Read that one more time, brother. Verse 1. For the law having a shadow of good things to come. Brothers and sisters, the law, as we spoke, is also known as the Torah. It's the first, also known as the Pentateuch. In, you know, scholars who, who deal with the Greek, that's what they call it. But the law, every place it says law is not talking about don't eat this and don't do that. The law is actually a, a canonical. It's, it's the first five books of the Bible. So it's telling you the Torah, the books of Moses had what, brother? Verse 1, for the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things. Now look at this. It had a shadow. Brothers and sisters. Now, guess what? A shadow. Can you touch a shadow, brothers and sisters? No, right? That's why it says not the very image of the thing. So if it's a sunny day out and you're standing outside and you see a shadow coming towards you, what does the shadow tell you? It tells you that something or someone is approaching. The same thing the Old Testament did. It was a shadow, brothers and sisters. It wasn't the substance. We're going to go into the substance. The substance was in the New Testament, but the shadow was in the old. Hebrews 10 and 1. For the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. Now look at this. According to the author, brothers and sisters, that... The Old Testament alone could not make a brother or a sister perfect, right? So this is what I show Israelites who only want to deal with the Old Testament. This is what I show Israelites who only want to deal with the Torah or the Tanakh. It wasn't good enough, brothers and sisters. How do we know? Because we're in, we're in captivity right now. So if it was good enough, why did we go on slave ships? Why did we serve the Persians? Why did we serve the Egyptians? Why did we serve, you know, <laughs> the Edomites? Why did we serve the Greeks and Romans? Why? It wasn't fulfilled, brothers and sisters. It was just a shadow, okay, according to the text. What's the title? 
out from the shadows. Now you know what the shadow is. According to the Bible, it's the law. It's the Old Testament. That is the shadow. We're going to deal with the substance today. Let's let's go to John, brother. Let's go to the Gospel of John. John chapter 5, verse 46. We're going to, we're going to start with Christ. John 5, verse 46. For had you believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if ye believe not his writings... How shall you believe my words? Examine the testimony of Christ concerning the Torah, brothers and sisters. Why? Because according to the Messiah, the true comprehension of Torah is monolithic with his narrative. Look at what he says. Can you read 46 again, brother? Verse 46. For had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if ye believe not his writings, how shall ye believe my words? Now look at this. Because he that rejects any part of the Bible will, for the same reason, reject it all. Christ is saying, if you didn't believe Moses, you're not going to believe me. Why? Because we're saying the same thing. You see that, brothers and sisters? If you didn't believe in Moses' writings, you're not going to believe mine. Why? Because we're monolithic. The narrative is amalgamated. The narrative is unified. So Christ is asking, have you read it? Moses wrote symbolically of the Messiah throughout his entire work. That's what we're seeing here. See, so there is no separation, Christians. There is no separation, Israelites. They're one and the same. You cannot separate them. Christ is telling you clearly that Moses wrote of me. Everything I'm doing, you can find. My entire life, you can find in the Torah, in Tanakh, in the shadows. Let's deal with that today, brothers and sisters. According to Christ, Moses wrote of him. Let's see. Let's go to Deuteronomy, brother. Let's go to the Torah. Deuteronomy, the 18th chapter, the 15th verse. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me. Unto him ye shall hearken. Look at this, brothers and sisters. In this particular text, Moses painted a prophetic picture of the Messiah. Remember, Christ said that Moses wrote of me. Can you read that again, brother? Because this Mosaic passage not only foretells the coming Savior, but also does what? It provides instructions. Let's see. Deuteronomy 18 and 15. The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me. Unto him ye shall hearken. Unto what, brother? Unto him ye shall hearken. See, so the text is clearly prophetic and instructional. He said there's going to be a prophet that's going to come from the children of Israel, right? And you shall listen to him. See? So what you're seeing here is that Moses was a prefiguration of Christ. According to the text, God's willingness to utilize us in ministry will be determined by two things. Let us show you that. Let's go to verse 18, brother. Deuteronomy 18 and 18. I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren. Now, why did he say from among the brethren? Because Moses was a Levite, right? Christ was a Jew. Levites and Jews are brethren. They're not the same tribe, right? 
But they are brethren. Can you read that again? Verse 18. I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren, like unto thee, and will put my words in his mouth. What will he do? And will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. Now look at this, brothers and sisters. Are you seeing that? Did you catch that? Because we said that according to the text, God's willingness to utilize us in ministry is what? It's determined by two things. Read that one more time so we can see the two things, brother. Deuteronomy 18, verse 18. I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren, like unto thee, and will put my words in his mouth. I and will put my words in his mouth, which means he has to be able to hear. He, he, must, he must be able to hear or distinguish the voice of God. That's number one. And he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. Now look at that. See, so here it is, brothers and sisters. He's telling you there's two things. You must be able to distinguish my voice and communicate what it is that you're distinguishing. Let us prove that. Let's go to, excuse me, let's go to Isaiah 50 and 4. There's two things that any person who wants to help do the work of the Messiah, to carry on the work of Christ, the work of the Most High, there's two specific responsibilities. This is how he determines who he will use. Let's go to verse 4, brother. Isaiah 50, verse 4. The Lord God hath given me the tongue of the learned. The what, brother? The tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. He wakeneth, <clears throat> he wakeneth morning by morning. He wakeneth mine ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God hath opened mine ear. And I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. Now look at that, look at that, brothers and sisters. Communication and your ability to distinguish God's voice is its primary concern in regards to who can be used in service. Let's look at it one more time. Read verse 4, brother, please. Isaiah 50 and 4. The Lord God hath given me the tongue of the learned. The tongue of the learned. That I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. Communication. You see this, brothers and sisters? Continue. He wakeneth morning by morning. He wakeneth mine ear to hear as the learned. Now look at this, brothers and sisters, because it's telling you that he teaches us that your ability to communicate effectively is a primary concern. Do you see, brothers and sisters? What's the next scripture say? Verse 5, brother. Isaiah 50 and 5. The Lord God had opened my ear. And what happened? And I was not rebellious. You were rebellious? I was not rebellious. Neither turned away back. So a lack of attentiveness and sensitivity to his voice will be an impediment to your employment. You see, brothers and sisters? So he said, you must be able to hear me and then communicate clearly what it is that I have given you. See? And you must, what? Obey. <laughs> he said, the most high have opened my ear. I was not rebellious. So it's telling you what? That there's a lot of people who hear God clearly, but act like they don't. Because they don't like what they're hearing. You see that, brothers and sisters? And we all know this. <laughs> We've probably done it at some time. The most high is clearly speaking to you. And you feel it. You hear it in your conscience. It's the spirit, right? But you act like you don't hear because it's not... You're not a fan of the information that's been communicated. So here it is. 
It's showing you clearly there's two primary concerns. Your ability to listen and your ability to communicate. Those who want to be used for instruments of righteousness must understand these two qualifications. Let's go back, brother. Let's go to Deuteronomy 18 and 15. Let's go back. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me. Unto him ye shall hearken. Listen to him. Jump to verse 18. Verse 18. I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren, like unto thee, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. So according to Moses... Every word spoken by this prophet is a living, infallible oracle from God himself. Brothers and sisters, there's something key there because in order to be used in his ministry, it's clear. <laughs> it's clear that you must be able to distinguish his voice. You must be able to communicate that. These are qualifications, brothers and sisters, and guess what? We're going to utilize the Bible to reveal some of the resemblances between who? Moses and Christ. Because clearly Moses is saying, the Most High will raise up a brethren like unto me. Right? So there will be somebody else who would follow Moses. Moses would be the shadow. Christ would be the substance. You can't touch a shadow, brothers and sisters. Okay? So we're going to go into, we're going to show you how we learn about Christ through Moses. Let us show you. Let's go to Exodus 7 and 19, brother, please. Still with Moses here. We're going to read 19 and 20. Exodus 7, verse 19. And the Lord spake unto Moses, Say unto Aaron, Take thy rod, and stretch out thine hand upon the waters of Egypt upon their streams, upon their rivers, and upon their ponds, and upon all their pools of water, that they may become blood, and that there may be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. So the first public miracle accomplished through Moses is the turning of water into blood. Do you see that? Is it clear? Read that one more time, brother, please. Exodus. 7 verse 19 and the Lord spake unto Moses say unto Aaron take thy rod and stretch out thine hand upon the waters of Egypt upon their streams upon their rivers and upon their ponds and upon all their pools of water why that they may become blood that they what brother that they may become blood and that there may be blood throughout all the land of Egypt both in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. So here we see a ecological disaster of epic proportions, brothers and sisters. It's attacking the life source, right? Water. Everything needs water, brothers and sisters. Without water, everything dies. So right away, we see that Moses, his first miracle was turning water into blood. What's the next scripture say, brother? Verse 20. And Moses and Aaron did so. As the Lord commanded. So look at this. The first plague clearly from verse 19 shows us it was directed against the Nile. An Egyptian object of worship. They worshiped the Nile. The Egyptians. Brothers and sisters. 
And now what? Can you read 20 one more time, brother? Exodus 7 and 20. And Moses and Aaron did so as the Lord commanded. And he lifted up the rod and smote the waters that were in the river in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. And all the water that were in the river were turned to blood. And all the water, what, brother? And all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. Now look at this. Subsequent to this miracle, the Egyptians were left bereft of their ordinary sources of drinking water. Brothers and sisters, I need you to remember this. Because we're going to show you how we learn about Christ through examining Moses. We're going to show you that Christ was a greater Moses, brothers and sisters. Moses was the shadow. Christ was the substance, just like Hebrews told us. So we've already established in Exodus, the seventh chapter, the 19th and 20th verse, the first miracle of Moses was to turn water into blood. Now, let's go to John, the second chapter, brother. John chapter 2, verse 1 through 9. John 2, verse 1. In the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Christ was there. So here it is, brothers and sisters. This was in Cana. This was in Galilee. And it's telling you that Christ's mother, Mary, was there. Verse 2. And both Christ was called and his disciples to the marriage. So now we see not only Christ, not only his mother, but the disciples also. So it's given a little background here. Verse 3. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Christ saith unto him, What does she say? They have no wine. Christ saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone. How many, brother? And there were set there six water pots of stone, after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Continue, brother. Christ saith unto them. What did he say, brother? Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom. Read that one more time, brother, because here we read the inaugural miracle of the Messiah at the wedding in Cana. John 2, verse 9. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. So here we see Christ revealing himself to the world as the one who is greater than Moses. Remember, what did Moses do? His first, his first miracle, he turned water into blood. Christ turned what? Water into wine, brothers and sisters. We know that wine represents what? <laughs> we know, number one, we know blood represents death. Wine represents life, brothers and sisters. Remember, it tells you about uh, how, you know, wine is good for life. 
to make merry the heart. So Christ was showing a new covenant now. Remember, what do you have at, you know, on Passover at what they call the Last Supper or, or you know, when in the Christian church, I think they do it every third, every th- third Sunday uh, where they do communion. See, so Christ is showing you someone greater is here. I'm not bringing condemnation, blood. Moses brought blood. <laughs> I'm bringing life. Can you read 10 one more time, brother? John 2, verse 10. And saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine. And when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. So it says that whenever there's a banquet, they set out the best wine first, right? And then once people are, you know, they're feeling good, they're warm and fuzzy inside, then they bring out the worst wine. Why? Because they probably, (laughs) they're not paying that close attention. They're already inebriated to some degree, but they're saying, no, you, you save the best wine for last. Continue, brother. Verse 11. This beginning of miracles did Christ in Cana of Galilee. Read that one more time, brother, please. Verse 11. This beginning of miracles did Christ in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. See, so here we see Christ revealing himself to the world as one greater than Moses. And guess what? When we compare the first miracles of both men, it gives us insight into the contrast between the law and grace. Throughout the scriptures, wine is symbolic of what? Of God's grace and our resultant joy. You'll always find, well, most places, 90% of the places in the Bible that you'll find wine, you'll find joy or, or Mary, brothers and sisters, right? So Christ was showing something here. <laughs> it's like, a, it's a new day. It's not coincidence that both of their, both of their inaugural miracles had to do with changing water into something. Christ was showing that I'm greater than he who, who changed the water into blood. I'm greater than he. Let's prove it. We're going to prove that today, brothers and sisters. Why? Because a lot of Israelites, they follow Moses over Christ. And Christ came to show you I'm greater than Moses, okay? Let's go to Hebrews, brother, 3 and 5. Sticking the New Testament here. Follow us, brothers and sisters, to Hebrews, the third chapter, the fifth and sixth verses. Hebrews 3, verse 5. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant. As what, brother? As a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we? If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Brothers and sisters, please examine the distinctions made by the apostle regarding Christ and Moses. Can you read verse 5 one more time, brother? Hebrews 3 and 5. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant. As a what, brother? As a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we? So according to the text, brothers and sisters, Moses was a servant in God's house. The Messiah was son over that same house. You see that, brothers and sisters? So the author reveals Christ as the master builder and Moses as a servant in that building. 
The text teaches us explicitly that Christ is greater than Moses. Read, uh, read those two one more time, brother. Hebrews 3 and 5. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we? Now that's key. We are the house of the Most High. Remember, the Most High no longer dwell in temples made with hands. But what? Dwell in you and I. So when you find, when you read the Bible, especially the New Testament, when it talks about the house of God, that's actually not a building. That's actually us, brothers and sisters. It says, what does 6 say again, brother? Hebrews 3 and 6. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we? If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. See, so we're showing you that Christ, Moses did what? It was, he was a prefiguration of Christ. He was preparing us for Christ. And guess what? We're going to need you to do. We're going to need you to follow us as we utilize the Bible to demonstrate how Christ is vastly superior to Moses. We're going to do that today, brothers and sisters. And we're going to show you that everything Moses uh, and the prophets were doing, Christ did greater. His whole life was a reenactment, brothers and sisters. Everything he did, he found in the Old Testament, in the Torah, in Tanakh, and, did it, and then did it greater. This is what Christ meant in, in Matthew 5 when he said, I didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill. You see, brothers and sisters, let's go to Exodus 14 and 15, brother. Let's go back. We're going to do a lot of Old Testament to New Testament today. Exodus 14, verse 15. And the Lord said unto Moses, Wherefore criest thou unto me? Speak unto the children of Israel, that they go forward. Now this is at the crossing of the Red Sea, brothers and sisters. Verse 16. But lift thou up thy rod, and stretch out thine hand over the sea. And divide it, and the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. So here it is, brothers and sisters. We see that Moses, uh, he was a little, <laughs> let's say, anxious, brothers and sisters. He was a little distressed. The Most High said, listen, why are you crying out to me? Stretch forth your hand, stretch forth your rod, and the waters will be divided, right? And the children of Israel will go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. So, look at this, brothers and sisters. Uh, read verse 17, brother. We're going to go to, to verse 22. Exodus 14 and 17. And I, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they shall follow them. And I will get me honor upon Pharaoh, and upon all his host, upon his chariots, and upon his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Ahia, the Lord. When I have gotten me up on, <clears throat> excuse me, when I have gotten me honor upon Pharaoh, upon his chariots, and upon his horsemen. Continue, brother. And the angel of God, which went before the camp of Israel, removed and went behind them. And the pillar of the cloud went from before their face, and stood behind them. And it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. And it was a cloud and darkness to them, but it gave light by night to these, so that the one came not near the other all the night. 
And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided. So, brothers and sisters, as a foreshadowing of baptism, we see water was the difference between safety and destruction. This was a foreshadowing, brothers and sisters. This was a foreshadowing of baptism in the New Testament, right? So, examine closely the power that Moses exhibited when he parted the sea and made the water stand up like a dam. Read 21 one more time, brother, please. Exodus 14, verse 21. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night, and made the sea dry land. He did what? Made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. See, look at this power that Moses possessed through the Spirit of the Most High, brothers and sisters. Divided the waters, made the sea dry land for the children of Israel. Now, let's go to John, brother, because we're showing you that everything that was done by the prophets in the Old Testament, Christ did greater. He was a fulfillment of the Old Testament. These, All the prophets in the Old Testament were foreshadows or prefigurations of Christ. It was to prepare you for Christ, brothers and sisters, the Messiah. Let's go to John 6 and 16 through 21, brother Christopher. John 6, verse 16. And when even was now come, his disciples went down into the sea and entered into a ship and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was now dark, and Christ was not come to them. And the sea arose by reason of a great wind that blew. So when they had rowed about five and twenty or thirty furlongs, they see Christ walking in the sea. They saw what, brother? They see Christ walking on the sea. And drawing nigh unto the ship. And they were afraid. So here it is, brothers and sisters. They get out on this boat. They get a little, you know, far away. And they see Christ walking on the sea. So here it is. Moses parted the Red Sea while Christ had the power to walk on top of it. See this, brothers and sisters? Here again, the text reveals the magnitude of the Messiah's superiority. Read that one more time, brother, please. John 6, verse 19. So when they had rowed about five and twenty or thirty furlongs, they see Christ walking on the sea and drawing nigh into the ship, and they were afraid. But he saith unto them, What did he say? It is I, be not afraid. Then they willingly received him into the ship, and immediately the ship was at the land whither they went. See, so here Christ demonstrates his authority over the elements of nature for the apostles. He calms storms. He walks on top of water. He didn't need to part the water. I walk on top of it. You see this, brothers and sisters? The text reveals his authority over the boisterous winds while simultaneously disregarding the laws of gravity. He's like, gravity? (laughs) I created gravity. (laughs) Okay? Boisterous winds. You see this, brothers and sisters? We're showing you that Christ was great. We're showing that even Moses as one of the most well-respected prophets of the children of Israel, he was preparing you for somebody greater. Let's go to John. Excuse me. Let's go to Isaiah 42 and 21. 
Look at this, brothers and sisters, because what Christ is doing was prophesied. Let's go to Isaiah, the 42nd chapter, the 21st verse. We'll have Brother Christopher read that. Isaiah 42, verse 21. The Lord is well pleased for his righteousness sake. He will magnify the law. He will do what? He will magnify the law and make it honorable. He would magnify the law. So the Messiah would come not to break the law, but to magnify it, to make it greater. You see this, brothers and sisters? He took the law. The same thing we just read was in the law. All of Moses' miracles were in the law. The first five books of the Bible, also known as the Torah or the Pentateuch. It says that Christ would come to magnify the law, to make it honorable. He came to expound on the law. He came to make the law greater. See, this was prophecy, brothers and sisters. This is the one whom whom Moses prophesied of. This is the one whom all the, the prophets of the Old Testament prophesied or prognosticated for. Christ, the one who would walk on water, the one who could calm a storm, the one who could turn water into wine, brothers and sisters. He was greater than Moses. We were supposed to look at Moses and learn of one to come in the future. Let's go to Exodus 17, brother. Let's go back to the law or the Torah. Because we're showing you that Christ did everything that Moses did, but greater. Everything that Christ did was a reenactment of the Old Testament. And see, our people who knew who they were at this time and knew the Torah... This was clear to them. All of this was clear because when we crossed the Red Sea amongst, you know, when when Moses turned water into uh, into blood, this was firsthand knowledge to us. This was something that was in the forefront of our minds during this time, brothers and sisters, unlike how it is today. Let's go to Exodus 17 and 9 through 12. I need you to examine this, brothers and sisters, because this was a time when the children of Israel were fighting against the Amalekites. Who are the Amalekites? They are who you call today Jewish people, the Jewish. This is, these are Edomites, brothers and sisters. These are the most powerful Edomites. They're called the Amalekites, the same people that Saul was told to utterly dist- uh, exterminate. The Most High told him to exterminate all of the Amalekites. Did he do that? No, he did not. Why? How do we know that? Because Haman, the Agagite, in the book of Esther, was an Amalekite. So we know that he didn't, you know, he didn't do what the Most High said. And what happened? He lost his kingdom for that. So it shows you how serious the Most High was about these particular people. He said, slaughter all of them. Slaughter all of them and kill all their uh, their animals. Saul did not do that and therefore lost his rulership to David. So we wanted to give you the, the, the context. We wanted to give you the, the understanding of what's going on here. This is a battle here between the Amalekites who are Edomites, right? And the children of Israel. Let's read verse 9, brother. Exodus 17, verse 9. And Moses said unto Joshua, Choose us out men, and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So here we read the story of war against the Amalekites, brothers and sisters. And according to the text, Joshua was appointed by Moses to lead Israel into battle against the Amalekites. Can you read that one more time, brother? 
Exodus 17, verse 9. And Moses said unto Joshua, Choose us out men, and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. He would stand on top of the hill with the rod of the Most High in his hand, right? So Joshua did as Moses had said to him, and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass, when Moses held up his hand, that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy, and they took a stone and put it under him. So here it is. He said, when Moses held up his hands, the children of Israel won this battle. Once his hands or his arms became tired and he dropped his hands, we started to lose this battle. Can you read 12 one more time, brother? Because they took some, precau they, they took some precautions here to make sure Moses was able to keep his hands up. Exodus 17, verse 12. But Moses' hands were heavy, and they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat thereon. And Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, the one on the one side, and the other on the other side. So one hand was on one side, the other was on the other side, like like he's lifting, uh, you know, lifting a weight or something, brothers and sisters. So his hands are outstretched with this rod, uh, vertical. Excuse me, uh, with this rod going from hand to hand, left to right, brothers and sisters. Right? Can you read that one more time, brother? Exodus twelve and seventeen. Now, why are we going to this? Because if you look at it closely, this is a clear foreshadowing of the Messiah at the cross. But Moses' hands were heavy, and they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat thereon. And Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, the one on the one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady unto the going down of the sun. Brothers and sisters, closely examine the posture. Of Moses that is illustrated in this text. He has a rod, one end in one hand, the other in the other hand, and his hands are over his head. Brothers and sisters, his his hands are over his head. His arms are outstretched. Brothers and sisters, this was a foreshadowing. It said while his hands were up, we won the battle. When his hands dropped. We lost the battle. Here it is. He's holding his hands as a cross. This was a foreshadowing, brothers and sisters. And let's prove this. Let's prove that this was a foreshadowing because the text tells you that he had he had Aaron on one side and he had her on the other side, helping him hold his arms up, right? Let's go to Mark 15 and 27, brother. We're going to Mark, the 15th chapter, the 27th verse. How do we know that this was a clear foreshadowing of Calvary, right? Mark 15, verse 27. And with him they crucified two thieves, the one on his right hand and the other on his left. So as Moses' arms were outstretched between two, right, as he was delivering Israel from the attacks of the Amalekites, Christ was outstretched between two on the cross. Moses had who? Aaron and her on opposite sides, helping him hold his arms up. Christ held his arms up as a cross between two thieves, that is, brothers and sisters. 
This was a clear foreshadowing. Everything that Christ did his entire life was a reenactment, brothers and sisters, of the Old Testament. He came to do it greater. Let's go back, brother. Let's go back to Exodus 17 and 9. Because remember, Isaiah said that Christ came to magnify the law. That means make it greater, make it bigger, right? We're going back to Exodus, the 17th chapter, the 9th through the 12th verse. Listen to it again, brothers and sisters. Exodus 17, verse 9. And Moses said unto Joshua, Choose us out men, and go out. Fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. He would have that rod, that same rod that turned into a snake and ate up the other snakes with Pharaoh. Remember that? Continue, brother. Verse 10. So Joshua did as Moses had said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Ur, Ur went up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass. When Moses held up his hand, that Israel prevailed. When Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. See, so the way it's written here, you would think he just had one hand in the air. But that's not, that's not the case. How do we know? Verse 12 gives us the insight. Exodus 17 and 12. But Moses' hands were heavy, and they took a stone. And put it under him. So to ensure victory, Aaron and Hur placed Moses on a stone and held his arms outstretched or stretched out. And Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, the one on the one side, one on one side holding up one hand, and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. See, so the victory we received while Moses' hands and arms were stretched foreshadowed the victorious cross of Christ. The Most High commanded Moses to record this story for a memorial. Why is this even in here? See, if we carelessly skim through this text, you'll miss something deeply prophetic, brothers and sisters. Here it was, Moses is in the posture of the cross with wood in between his arms, outstretched between two people. When his hands were up, we prevailed. When his hands fell down, we began to be beaten, brothers and sisters. So there's a plethora of things within this story that would operate as a prognostication of Calvary. How do we know? Read 12 one more time, brother, because I want to make sure our brothers and sisters get this clearly. Exodus 17, verse 12. But Moses' hands were heavy, and they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat there on, and Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, the one on the one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. Until the what? Until the going down of the sun. Until the what, brother? Until the going down of the sun. Remember that. He kept his hands up until the sun went down. Now that's key. Because the Most High commanded Moses to put these details in the Bible. He commanded him to put this in the record. Why? Why even put that there? Why even put he held his hands up to the going down of the sun? Further proof that this was a prognostication. This was a prophetic. This was prophetic. It was prophesying what? Calvary. It said that he had his arms up into the going down of the sun. Let's go to Luke 23, brother. 
to show you how Christ fulfilled this. Luke 23 and 44. We're going to read 44 through 46. Luke 23 verse 44. And it was about the sixth hour. And there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. And the sun was darkened. And the veil of the temple was rent in the mist. And when Christ had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. Brothers and sisters, there's no such thing as coincidence in the vocabulary of the Most High. Everything is predestined. This particular incident is highly symbolic. We're reading a, a visible suspension of the law of nature. The sun stopped shining according to Luke. Let's go back up and read that again, brother. Let's start at verse 44. Luke 23 and 44. And it was about the sixth hour, and there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. From 12 noon to 3 p.m. From 12 to 3, the brightness of the sun did what, brothers and sisters? The brightness of the sun is supposed to be at its height. <laughs> From 12 to 3, the sun is at its highest peak, brothers and sisters. It should have been brighter than any other time during the day, yet it was darkened. The text tells you the sun stopped shining. The, the apostle simply says the sun fell without indicating the cause. See? So there had been darkness here. It was darkness here, brothers and sisters. Now remember, it told you that what? That Moses kept up his arms into the going down of the sun. We proved that that was a foreshadowing of Christ having up his arms in between two thieves on Calvary, right? And it tells you that the sun was darkened. Are you seeing the correlation here? Everything Christ did, everything that he did, brothers and sisters, was a was a prophetic. Fulfillment of the Old Testament. Moses was the shadow. Christ was the substance. Why did the Most High say, well, Moses, hold up your arms? If he could just make us win the battle, why even have him do that? Why even have him hold up a rod over his head, you know, one end in one end, one end in one hand, and one end in the other hand? Why even do that? It's all symbolic, brothers and sisters. It's all symbolic. Now, the thing is, Brothers and sisters, there had been darkness on the earth before. Not just here. It tells you that for from 12 to 3 p.m., there was darkness on the earth. The sun was darkened. This was not the first time that there was darkness on the earth. Let's prove that because right now, reading this, this these texts is an invitation to go see where else there had been darkness in the earth. When else there had been darkness in the earth. This is an invitation. This is what students do, brothers and sisters. See, there's a difference between reading and studying. Reading is just reading it like a novel. Studying is finding out what it means. That's a difference. Brother Christopher, let's go to Exodus 10 and 20 to show our brothers and sisters that there had been darkness before. Exodus 10, verse 20. Now, these are the plagues that the Most High did against Pharaoh and the Egyptians. 
But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not let the children of Israel go. And the Lord said unto Moses, What did he say? Stretch out thine hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even darkness which may be felt. The ninth plague, brothers and sisters, brought total darkness on the land for three days. Now remember, the text we just came from said it was darkness for three hours. You see how all of this is, is fitting, brothers and sisters? None of this is coincidence. There was darkness for three days, which we're going to prove the length. Read that one more time, brother. Verse 21. Exodus 10, verse 21. And the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out thine hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even darkness which may be felt. And Moses stretched forth his hand toward heaven, and there was a thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They saw not one another, neither rose any from his place for three days. Now look at this, because here we read the last of the admonitionary plagues, brothers and sisters. According to the text, for three whole days, no one human in Egypt saw one another. It was so dark, they hadn't seen a person in three days. Brothers and sisters. But there's something key there that I don't want you to miss. Read that one more time, brother. Exodus 10 and 23. They saw not one another, neither rose any from his place for three days. See, so Egypt was enveloped in the wrath of God. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. They had what, brother? Had light in their dwellings. So according to verse 23, Israel was exempt from this particular plague. The children of Israel had light. All of Egypt was dark for three days where they had not even seen one another. Brothers and sisters, it said darkness that can be felt. That's a thick darkness. That's a heavy darkness. Brothers and sisters. So there was darkness one time before. So all of this links. Moses kept up his arms until the going to, to the sun was darkened or to the going down of the sun. Christ, when he had his arms outstretched between two thieves, the sun was darkened for three hours. And that led us back to when? That led us back to the exodus from Egypt, where one of the plagues was darkness for three days. You see this, brothers and sisters? Now, guess what? None of this happened by coincidence. Why was it three days? Why did the Most High choose three days? Did he just, you know, did he just feel like three days or was it symbolic of something? We're going to show you. It was symbolic. There was reasoning, brothers and sisters. According to Exodus 10, the ninth plague was darkness for three days for the Egyptians. The children of Israel had light. Why was it three days? Why, was it, why wasn't it less than three days? Why wasn't it more than three days? Let's prove that. Let's go to Exodus 3, brother. Exodus, the third chapter, the 18th verse. Exodus 3, verse 18. And they shall hearken to thy voice, and thou shalt come, thou and the elders of Israel, unto the king of Egypt. And ye shall say unto him, Go unto Pharaoh, and say unto him, the Lord God of the Hebrews hath met with us, and now let us go, we beseech thee, three days journey into the wilderness, that they, excuse me, 
that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Now, brothers and sisters, did you see that? Read that one more time, brother. I want them to catch this, please. Exodus 3 and 18. And they shall hearken to thy voice, and thou shalt come, thou and the elders of Israel, unto the king of Egypt. And ye shall say unto him, The Lord God of the Hebrews hath met with us, and now let us go. We beseech thee, three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. You see that, brothers and sisters? It was three days because we asked Pharaoh to let us go for three days to go sacrifice unto the Most High. Let us go into the wilderness on a three-day journey so we can sacrifice unto the Most High. What, what did he say? Read verse 19, brother. Verse 19. And I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not by a mighty hand. See? So the more you read the Bible, the more you meditate upon it, the more you will be astonished with it, brothers and sisters. A casual reader of the Bible doesn't recognize the mighty meanings contained in these pages. That's why it was darkness for three days. Darkness represents the wrath of God, brothers and sisters. So you will find the scriptures enlarge themselves as you read them. The more you study them, the less you will appear to know of them, brothers and sisters. Because we've read all these scriptures. Those of us who grew up in Christian church and all that, we've read these scriptures many times. And never even, you know, never even put two and two together. It all started where? It started with that battle with Amalek. Where Moses held up his arms in the posture of a cross until the sun went down. That linked to what? Christ being on the cross with his arms out, outstretched and the sun being darkened. And that wasn't the first time of darkness. That was three hours of darkness on Calvary, but there was another darkness that lasted three days. That was the ninth plague against the Egyptians. See, none of this is coincidence. This is how you know the Bible is authentic because how could the Bible with many different authors, there was many different authors of the Bible. You had Paul, you had Peter, you had Moses, you had Isaiah, Ezekiel, but the narrative was monolithic. The narrative never changed over all these years, brothers and sisters, the years between Moses and Isaiah, Isaiah and Christ, Christ and Peter and Paul. The same method, excuse me, the same message, it was consistent, brothers and sisters. This is the word of God. This is the living word. Do you see this, brothers and sisters? Now, what does that link us with? What does this three days of darkness link with? Let's go to John, the first chapter, the 29th verse, brother. We're going to read verse 29, and then we'll jump to 35 and 36. John. 1 verse 29 the next day <clears throat> excuse me the next day john seeth christ coming unto him and said behold the lamb of god which taketh away the sin of the world read that one more time brother because in this declaration john foretold and explained the role of christ and what he would you know what he would do for the children of israel john 1 verse 29 
The next day John seeth Christ coming unto him, and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. See, so this was a declaration, which did what? Explain the role of Christ as Israel's Messiah. Behold the Lamb of God, would take away the sins of the world. Jump to verse 35, brother. John 1, verse 35. Again, the next day after John stood and two of his disciples and looking upon Christ as he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak and they followed Christ. Look at this, brothers and sisters. You see this? The Passover lamb of the Old Testament was a foreshadowing of Christ's sacrifice on Calvary. See this, brothers and sisters? Read 35 one more time, please. John 1 and 35. Again, the next day after John stood and two of his disciples, and looking upon Christ as he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Continue. And the two disciples heard him speak. And they followed Christ. So as a result of John's testimony, the first two disciples began following Christ. You see this, brothers and sisters? Why? How was all this linking? It all started with Moses with his arms outstretched. Which pointed to what? It pointed to Calvary. Here it was that Calvary was on the Passover. The lamb. Remember the lamb? The lamb led us back where? <laughs> to Egypt in the three days of darkness. All of this fits like a puzzle, brothers and sisters. It all fits like a puzzle. Let us show you something. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 5 and 7, brother. We're showing that everything Christ did was a reenactment from the Old Testament. Not only was it a reenactment, it was a greater reenactment. It was a it was a, an epic, epic increase, brothers and sisters. Read verse seven, brother, please. First Corinthians five, verse seven. Now remember, John just called Christ the Lamb of God. Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Look at this. The Apostle Paul pointed to the Passover to explain the practical implications of Christ's sacrifice. See? The New Testament teaches that Christ is the quintessential Passover lamb. Where, did, where was the first Passover? Egypt. <laughs> right before the, or excuse me, subsequent, right after the darkness. Right after the darkness, the next plague to come was what? Read 7 one more time, please, brother. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7. Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The Apostle Paul instructed the church of Corinth to do what? To observe the Passover as a memorial of the death of Christ. See? 
So the, the, the Old Testament sacrifice of the Passover was pointing to what? It was preparing you for Christ, brothers and sisters. See, Passover is really a picture or a preview of the Messiah shedding his blood for Israel's eternal salvation. Remember, Hebrews 10 and 1 said what? The law, the sacrifices was what? It was a shadow of things to come. Christ is the very image. So this text is teaching us that what? Even the Passover, where Christians don't even celebrate Passover, they celebrate Easter. And I'm like, what scripture is that? What scripture tells you to celebrate the resurrection of Christ? There's no scripture. He said, celebrate my death. My death is Passover. So the Hebrews, the Israelites, our church, we don't celebrate pagan Easter. We celebrate the Passover. Why? Because that's what was commanded in the New Testament. See? Are you seeing this, brothers and sisters? Paul plainly instructs that the purpose of keeping the holy days of unleavened bread is to remind us of our need to remove sin from our lives. It says, purge out therefore the old leaven. That's representing sin. It's, it's iniquity. Anyone who, who's ever baked a cake knows that a little leaven or yeast, <laughs> it makes the thing swell up. It raises it. So right after the Passover, you have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, where you go seven days without eating anything with any leavening agents in it to remind us, brothers and sisters. So we're showing you here that now Paul is, is showing us that the Passover represents Christ. You see this? So we started with what? The inaugural miracle of Moses turning water into blood. And that linked with what? Christ turning water into wine, something greater. To Moses dividing the Red Sea so we can walk on dry land. Christ walked on the water. Defied gravity. Moses did what? During a battle against the Amalekites. He held his, he held his arms outstretched with the rod in between. When he dropped his arms, we died. We began to to be overtaken and overcome. When he kept his arms up, we won. And the text made it clear that he kept his arms up until the going down of the sun. And that linked us with. That linked us when the sun became dark for three hours when Christ was on that cross. What was Christ doing on that cross? What did it represent according to Paul, the Passover? Remember, John said that Christ was the lamb to take away the sins of the world. You see how flawlessly, how seamlessly all this fits together, brothers and sisters? Don't ever put the Quran or the Gita or the Egyptian Book of, Dead, of the Dead or the, the Mormon Bible or any of these garbage books on the same mantle as the Bible. Those books are fallacies. Those books are written by devil worshippers. This book is inspired by the Holy Spirit. The narrative never changes. Over 2,000 years, the narrative never changes, brothers and sisters. We just wanted to show you how we got here. Paul is saying that Christ is the Passover. Read 7 one more time, brother, please. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7. Purge out therefore the old leaven, 
that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. Why? For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Christ was our Passover. So now this is an invitation to go learn about the Passover. Why? Because the Passover, what transpired there, is a representation of Christ. The Passover was pointing to Christ. So when John said what? When John said this was the Lamb of God to take away sins, as soon as our people heard that, they thought back to this. They thought back to Egypt. That Lamb. The blood that was struck on the doorpost. So that death, the death angel would pass by or pass over. That's where you get it from, brothers and sisters. So John, when he said that this is the Lamb of God, our people understood clearly what that meant. Why? Because they understood history. Now, Christians, when John said that, Christians had no idea what that was about. Because they don't read the Old Testament. Right? They don't follow the Holy Days, right? We're showing you how you cannot fully follow Christ without the Old Testament. You really can't understand Christ. That's why, remember, he said, Moses wrote of me. <laughs> if you didn't believe Moses, you won't believe me. Why? Because I'm written of all throughout the Torah and Tanakh. I was prophesied. Everything that Moses did and the other prophets did, I am going to do greater. Everything. So now, according to Paul, he's telling us that Christ is the Passover. So now he's doing what? He's inviting us to go back and read about the Passover again. See, this is how the Bible, this is how you learn the Bible. These are invitations. He's pushing you. He's saying, okay, Christ is our Passover. Okay, well now go read about the Passover. Go read about the Passover and it'll teach you about Christ. Let's go there. Let's go to Exodus 12, brother. Exodus 12 and 21. Exodus 12, verse 21. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel mm -hmm. and said unto them, Draw out and take you a lamb according to your families and kill the Passover. And ye shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the, the basin. And strike the lintel and the two side posts with the blood that is in the basin. Brothers and sisters, I need you to closely examine the application of the blood, excuse me, of the lamb's blood. Read that one more time, brother, from the top, please. Exodus 12 and 21. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said unto them, Draw out and take you a lamb according to your families and kill the Passover. Kill the Passover lamb, right? And ye shall take a bunch of hyssop. A bunch of what? A bunch of hyssop. Hyssop is a small bush-like plant in the mint family. It's symbolic for cleansing. You can read about it in the Old Testament. It was for cleansing. It said, take a bunch of hyssop and do what, brother? And dip it in the blood that is in the basin. And strike the lintel and the two side posts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the at the door of his house until the morning. And none of you what, brother? And none of you shall go out at the door of his house until the morning. Continue. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he seeth the blood upon the lintel and on the two side posts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not suffer the destroyer to come in unto your house to smite you. Brothers and sisters, we just wanted you to closely examine 
how the blood was applied. The first appearance of hyssop in the Bible is in Exodus during the Passover. This is the first time you see it. The last place hyssop appears in the Bible is at the cross. So we wanted you to show, we wanted to show, and we're going to read it one more time just in case you missed it. How was the blood applied? Read 22 again, please, brother. Exodus 12, verse 22. And ye shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and strike the lintel and the two side posts with the blood that is in the basin. So he's saying use this bundle or bunch of hyssop as a paintbrush. And you see this, brothers and sisters? Stick with that, okay? As Brother Christopher read, hyssop was how you applied the blood. Now, we already discussed that the first place you find hyssop in the Bible, right here, during the Passover. The last place you find hyssop in the Bible is at the fulfillment of the Passover. Let's go there, Brother Christopher. Let's go to John 19 and 28. Follow us there, brothers and sisters. Remember that hyssop, that's how the blood was applied, right? John 19 and 28 says what, brother? John 19, verse 28. After this, Christ, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with the vinegar, and put it upon hyssop. And put it upon what? And put it upon hyssop. And put it to his mouth. Look at this, brothers and sisters. What is the significance of this stalk of hyssop, brothers and sisters? Here we see the hyssop establishes a relationship between the prototypical Passover lamb and the quintessential Passover lamb. Remember the Old Testament, Exodus, where we just came from, Exodus 12, 21 through 23 said, apply this blood to your doorpost with a bundle or a bunch of hyssop. And now we're seeing hyssop again. And this is the last place during this, during the Passover, that you will find that word in the literature. Read that one more time, brother, please. John 19, verse 28. After this, Christ, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar, and put it upon hyssop. What did he put it on, brother? And put it upon hyssop. And put it to his mouth. See that, brothers and sisters? Now, remember, right before that, it said that... <laughs> Let me go back, because I think you may have missed it. Read 28 again, brother. Verse 28. After this, Christ, knowing that all things were now accomplished... Accomplished. That the scripture might be fulfilled. That what, brother? That the scripture might be fulfilled. That what, brother? The scripture might be fulfilled. So he was trying to fulfill scripture. (laughs) See this, brothers and sisters? Fulfill means there was already a blueprint. So there was a blueprint that Christ was working off of. Everything he did was to fulfill something he already knew was written. (laughs) Christ's entire life was a reenactment, brothers and sisters. He reenacted the Old Testament where Moses failed. Christ did not. Where Israel failed, Christ did not. Christ did not fail. Where all of our people that prefigured Christ failed, Christ did not. Read 28 one more time, brother, please. 
John 19 and 28. After this, Christ, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So to fulfill the scripture, what did he say? I thirst. See, so even now, <laughs> he knew what to say. Why? Because he was trying to fulfill scripture. Now, how did he fulfill it? Read verse 29, brother. John 19 and 29. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with the vinegar and put it upon hyssop and put it to his mouth. When Christ, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. See? So the Passover, with all of its history and symbolism, is actually the centerpiece of Christ's offering of himself. Christ was the Passover lamb. We're showing you how the Old Testament, everything in the Old Testament pointed to a coming Messiah, who we know was Christ. Everything. The Holy Day, the Passover, pointed to Christ. Instead of a, you know, a sheep, a lamb, actual cattle, came Christ. See, and he, he established the sacrificial system because he wanted our people to understand sacrifice. Because we were sacrificing animals, and you got to realize, sacrificing animals, that was your money. So that was actually money that you were sacrificing because these were, you know, these were animals from your own flocks. So he was saying, listen, you will respect it. You, you won't respect Christ's sacrifice until I teach you how to respect sacrifice, you know, <laughs> this, the beginning of sacrifice. So he taught us using animals where we had to actually kill an animal that we either used for food or used for work to graze the grass. And then said, well, now I'm going to give my son as a fulfillment. Now you should understand the significance of it. Why? Because you were there sacrificing animals in the Old Testament. Are you seeing how everything in the Old Testament points to the Messiah? Every single thing, brothers and sisters. Follows to Matthew 12 and 42. Matthew 12 verse 42. The queen of the south shall raise... Excuse me. The queen of the south shall rise up in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. For she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Hear the what? Hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. <laughs> this is Christ. The queen of the south is also known as the queen of Sheba. Brothers and sisters, go read that again. Go read that, you know, what transpired in the Old Testament again. With Solomon, but Christ was being clear here. He said, One greater than Solomon here. He's saying, This queen traveled across the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And I tell you this, one greater than Solomon is here. See, this is why they <laughs> this is why they didn't like Christ, because he tell you flat out, those people you respect in the Old Testament, I'm better than them. Don't ever get that misconstrued. I'm the Messiah. Read that one more time, brother, please. Matthew 12, verse 42. The queen of the south shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. For she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. To hear what? To hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. So here it is. Christ compares himself to Solomon 
the son of David in the Old Testament. So once again, when Christ does this, he's doing what? He's inviting you to go into the Old Testament and read about Solomon. When he does this, when he says one greater than Moses is here, when remember, we read that. When he says one greater than Solomon is here, when they refer to Christ as the Passover, that's an invitation to go where? To go read about Solomon. Why is he making himself, why is he comparing himself to Solomon? There's a reason for this. Let's go to 1 Chronicles, brother. Let's go to the Old Testament. 1 Chronicles, the 22nd chapter, the 9th verse. The title of today's lesson is Out from the shadows. We're going through the Old Testament, brothers and sisters, to show you how the Old Testament, the things that transpired in the Old Testament, Christ fulfilled. And not only in fulfilled, but enlarged. See this? And now you're having Christ flat out say, I'm greater than Solomon, the one whom you respect, Solomon. First Chronicles 22, verse 9. Behold, a son shall be born to thee, who shall be a man of rest. A man of what? A man of rest. And I will give him rest from all his enemies round about, for his name shall be Solomon. Why? And I will give him peace and quietness unto Israel in his days. According to the prognostication of Nathan, Solomon would be a man of rest, opposed to a man of war, such as David. So it's telling you that this this. Prophetic text is telling you that Solomon would know peace. During the time of Solomon, that was the last time Israel had peace, brothers and sisters. Remember, David was always at war. His whole entire life was about killing, brothers and sisters. It's telling you that your son, David, your son, Solomon, his reign will be peaceful. So Israel was not at war during the time of Solomon. Can you read that one more time, brother? First Chronicles 22, verse 9. Behold, a son shall be born to thee, who shall be a man of rest. And I will give him rest from all his enemies round about, for his name shall be Solomon. Brothers and sisters, Solomon comes from the word shalom, which means peace. So Solomon's name actually meant peace. That's why it says, for his name shall be Solomon. Continue. For his name shall be Solomon. And I will give him peace and quietness unto Israel in his days. See, and I will give him peace. So his name was peace, essentially, because why? The Most High said he would give us peace during this time. It says, and I will give peace and quietness unto Israel in his days. So during the, t the reign of Solomon, there was no war, brothers and sisters. Now, you have to know that in the Hebrew, a name was given based on the characteristics. So a person was named after what they were created to be. So Christ's name in the heap, Christ's name is Savior. So the only thing you would have to do is go look up the word Savior in the ancient Phoenician Hebrew, and it's what? Yeshaya. Yeshaya, which means my Savior. So you had Savior, which is Yesha. My Savior is Yeshaya. Not Yeshua, not Yeshua, no. That's Joshua's name. Go look at what Joshua's name is. Joshua's name, <laughs> those are Joshua's name. You had Yehoshua, you have some people saying, no. That's not Christ's name. Christ's name is Yeshua, which is Savior in the ancient Phoenician Hebrew. His name is not Jesus. How do we know? There was no J's during that time. 
brothers and sisters. So it's no way that his name could be Jesus. Matter of fact, the, the Romans put that there. Why? Because they, they worshipped Jesus. Who is that? Zeus. How do you spell Jesus, brothers and sisters? <laughs> J-E-S-U-S. Jesus is Hail Zeus. Worship to Zeus. Roman mythology. You see this? Christ's name is Yeshaya, which means Savior. Solomon's name comes from the word Shalom, which means peace. That's what his name was. Read that one more time, brother. First Chronicles 22, verse 9. Behold, a son shall be born to thee who shall be a man of rest. And I will give him rest from all his enemies round about, for his name shall be Solomon. And I will give him peace and quietness unto Israel in his days. Here we read the time comes when the warrior departs and the man of peace enters into the household genealogy. As we closely examine the text, we see the origin, the origin of Solomon's name, which is peace. It says that he shall be a man of rest. Rest from what? Rest from war, which is peace, brothers and sisters. It says, I will give him rest from all his enemies. I will give him peace. That's what that means, brothers and sisters. Solomon's name means peace. Now, why would? Now why does that matter? Because Christ said one greater than Solomon is here. Solomon's name is peace. He represented peace, brothers and sisters. And Christ is saying one greater than peace, <laughs> than Solomon, is here. See, he wanted you to go back here and find this out, brothers and sisters. Let's go to 1 Kings 4 and 25. 1 Kings, the 4th chapter, the 25th verse. 1 Kings 4, verse 25. And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, and every man under his vine and under his fig tree, from Dan even to Beersheba. When? All the days of Solomon. When? All the days of Solomon. According to this verse, one of the main characteristics of Solomon's reign was peace. You see that, brothers and sisters? Read that one more time, please. First Kings 4, verse 25. And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, from Dan even to Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. See, we had peace. Judah, which is the southern kingdom, which are the darker tribes, Benjamin, Judah, and Levi, in Israel, which were the northern tribes, which are the Hispanic and native tribes. We all dwelt safely, no war, all the days of Solomon. You see this, brothers and sisters? Remember, Solomon's name comes from the word Shalom, which means peace. Now, let's go to Christ, because Christ said one greater than Solomon is now here. What did that mean? Let's go to Isaiah 9 and 6, brother. Isaiah, the ninth chapter, the sixth verse. Isaiah 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. The what? The Prince of Peace. The what? The Prince of Peace. This is a prophecy of the coming rule of Christ on earth, brothers and sisters. It tells you the government will be upon his shoulders. This means he will bear the responsibility 
of governing the people. Can you read that again, brother? Isaiah 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace. Remember, Solomon's name was peace. He represented priests. Christ is saying, I'm the Prince of Peace. <laughs> See? Peace will be characterized, excuse me, peace will characterize his reign upon the earth, according to Isaiah 9 and 6. His administration would be to restore and perpetuate peace. This is a prognostication. This is a prophetic text of Christ telling you the government shall be upon his shoulders. That means Christ is bringing a government when he comes, brothers and sisters. And the governments now understand this. Read the next scripture, brother. Isaiah 9 and 7. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. You see that? <laughs> his administration would be to restore and perpetuate peace. It says the increase of his government in peace, there shall be no end. You see that, brothers and sisters? So Solomon was a man of peace, but Christ is the prince of peace. He is the source of peace between who? God and man. That's what makes him the prince of peace. We're going to show you that. He is the source of peace between God and man. We can prove that. Let's go to Romans, brother. Why is he the prince of peace? Let's go to Paul, brother. Let's go to Romans 5 and 10. Romans 5 verse 10. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Now look at this. Paul magnifies the true peace we have, we have received being reconciled to the Most High through the atonement of the Lamb. He said, while we were enemies, can you read that again? Romans 5 verse 10. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. How were we reconciled? We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So before the act of redemption at the cross, the Most High, according to the text, considered us enemies due to our rebellious sin. You see this, brothers and sisters? We were the reconciliation we read came from the death of the lamb. He is the prince of peace. Read that one more time, brother, please. Romans 5 verse 10. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Continue. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Christ. By whom we have now received the atonement. By now what? Excuse me. By whom what? By whom we have now received the atonement. According to Paul, the price of reconciliation was the blood of an unblemished lamb. This reconciliation produced a restoration towards a peaceful relationship between God and man. Brothers and sisters. You see this? God was at war with us. God was against us. He viewed us as enemies. We couldn't be in his presence. We had to kill animals. Blood had to be shed. We were enemies. And guess what? Those who reject Christ are still enemies of God. See, there is no other way. You can try to follow all the laws in the Bible to 
that you're still an enemy. You're just following not eating pork. The Bible tells you the only way to be reconciled, the only way to receive reconciliation is through the blood of the unblemished lamb that is the Messiah. So this is how Christ is the Prince of Peace. See? You see that? He said one greater than Solomon is here. What was he meaning? <laughs> this is exactly what he meant. Let's go to Isaiah, brother. Let's go to Isaiah 11 and 6. I'm going to read 6 through 9. We're going to show you he's the Prince of Peace. This is what comes with Christ once he returns. Isaiah 11 verse 6. The wolf also, <clears throat> excuse me, the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. Isaiah explains the peace and security of all creation under the lordship of, of the Messiah. It's telling you that the lamb, the wolf, and leopard, they'll all lie down together. They'll, they won't kill each other. They won't eat each other. Can you read that again? Isaiah 11 and 6, the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. Continue. And the cow and the bear shall feed, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. See, so closely examine the symbolic language regarding the coming kingdom of the Messiah. It says the lion shall eat straw like the ox. What does that mean? It's telling you that they will become herbivores again, brothers and sisters. They will no more, animals will no longer be carnivores once Christ comes back. <laughs> the Prince of Peace. He said one greater than Solomon is here. So he's showing you that Solomon pointed to Christ. Christ was a greater Solomon. Christ was a greater, Christ was a greater Passover. Christ was a greater Moses. Out of the shadows, brothers and sisters. Read that one more time, please. Isaiah 11, verse 7. And the cow and the bear shall feed. Their young ones shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. So when the Messiah reigns, nature will be transformed. No longer will there be predators among the animals. Verse 8. And the sucking child shall play on the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. See, this is an explication of what was said in Isaiah 9 and 6, that he should be the Prince of Peace. See, he's greater than Solomon. Solomon's name means peace. But when Christ returns, the animals will no longer go against each other. See that, brothers and sisters? He is the Prince of Peace. Everything changes upon the second coming of Christ. Why? Because he reconciled us back unto the Most High. The reconciliation before the bloodshed of the Lamb, the unblemished Lamb, might I add. We were considered enemies unto the Most High. Let's go to John 20, brother. Out from the shadows. We're showing you how the Old Testament points to Christ. We're showing you the importance of the Old Testament. 
Why? Because everywhere Christ, you know, Christ is pointing you to the Old Testament when he's giving you these these invitations. When he says, listen, one greater than Solomon is here. What he's telling you is go read about Solomon. Go see how great Solomon was and understand I'm greater. This is how he points us in the right direction, brothers and sisters. Read 19, please, brother. John 20, verse 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Christ and stood in the midst, and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. Now look at this, brothers and sisters. <laughs> look at this closely. Because this is after. Examine this. Read that one more time, brother. Because examine the first word that the re resurrected Messiah says to his disciples. This is after his resurrection, brothers and sisters. This Look at the words that he says. John 20, verse 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Christ and stood in the midst, and saith unto them, What did he say? Peace be unto you. Look at this, brothers and sisters. <laughs> He's the Prince of Peace. He reconciled you. So after his resurrection, he now says, Peace be unto you. So the first thing to notice is that Christ used this greeting of peace after his resurrection. Read the next scripture, brother, please. John 20, verse 20. And when he had said so, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said to them again. Then what? Then said Christ to them again. Peace be unto you, as my father has sent me. Even so sent I you. See, he did not use this greeting before his resurrection. By his resurrection, he was able to utilize his greeting. He never said, peace be unto you before. Why? Because there was no peace. <laughs> the peace only, you know, was applicable once he had shed his blood on the heavenly tabernacles and was resurrected. We know that Solomon's name. Look at Solomon's name in the Hebrew. It means peace. He said, one greater than Solomon is here. You see this? We learned that in Isaiah, the animals will no longer be predatorial. No more carnivores. See, we saw that. We saw Isaiah 9 and 6 say the increase of his government will be the increase of, will be the increase of peace. And the very first thing Christ says to his disciples once resurrected is peace be unto you. See? Do you see that? Jump to verse 26, brother. John 20, verse 26. And after eight days again his disciples were within, and Thomas was with them. Then came Christ, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst. What did he say? Peace be unto you. See? Christ used his greeting three times when he met with his disciples. You see that, brothers and sisters? Three times he used this. He was just walking around saying peace. <laughs> you got peace now. Reconciliation has been accomplished. You have now been reconciled. So even though we knew peace during the time of Solomon, we didn't know this type of peace. 
the peace we had with Solomon was peace from other Gentiles trying to come against us. This peace is between you and God. So let's continue the narrative between Solomon and Christ. Because we're showing you how Solomon pointed to Christ. It was a prefiguration of Christ. Christ said, I'm greater than Solomon. Why did he say that? Because he wanted you to go read about Solomon. Because once you read about Solomon, you would understand more about Christ. Let's go to 1 Kings 5, brother. You've been a great teaching today, brothers and sisters. This is a this is textbook here, brothers and sisters. This is classroom stuff here. This is high level. This is not milk, brothers and sisters. This is meat. So I understand if some people can't follow this. I understand that. We have plenty of milk on the podcast. We have plenty of milk. So if this is something that is a little too hard to ascertain or to digest, pause this, right? Go to some of our easier things and come back to this when you're able to digest this. There's no problem, brothers and sisters. This is for some of our higher, higher level learners. Okay, this is an advanced academy lesson here. Read verse uh, three, brother, please. First Kings five, verse three. Thou knowest how that David, my father, could not build an house unto the name of the Lord, his God, for the wars which were about him on every side. It told you that David was not allowed to uh, to build a temple because of the bloodshed. Until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. Continue. But now the Lord my God hath given me rest on every side, so that there is neither adversary nor evil occurring. So the bloodshed of David acted as an impediment to his construction of the temple, according to the text. Solomon's reign was noted for the lack of warfare during his administration. Read 4 one more time, please, brother. First Kings 5 verse 4. But now the Lord my God hath given me rest on every side, so that there is neither adversary nor evil occurring. So the text teaches that Solomon's kingdom knew a time of unprecedented peace. Brothers and sisters, continue. Verse 5. And behold, I purpose to build a house unto the name of the Lord my God. Solomon wanted to what? I purpose to build a house unto the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord spake unto David my father, saying, Thy son, whom I will set upon thy throne in thy room, he shall build a house unto my name. Now remember this. Solomon is remembered for building the great temple at Jerusalem. Solomon's temple. That was one of the things he was known for. That's key, brothers and sisters, because what we're seeing here, these words apply to Solomon to be sure. But in a greater sense, they applied to Christ. Remember, Christ was the son of David also. It says that all throughout the, the New Testament. Christ, the son of David. Remember, he, the Most High promised David that the Messiah would come through his lineage. So this text right here is not only speaking about Solomon building a physical temple, right? You know, brick and mortar. But Christ, who did what? Who did a greater temple. See, remember, Christ pointed you to Solomon. Why? Because you could learn from Solomon about Christ. If you looked at Solomon and see where Solomon, you know, where Solomon failed, Christ did not. Where Solomon succeeded, Christ did better. That's what Christ was trying to show here. 
So in 1 Kings, we, sh- we see that David was, was not allowed to, to build a temple. Why? Because he dealt with a lot of blood. He was a man of war. Not only that, he killed a man and slept with his wife. Right? Remember that, brothers and sisters? Jump to... Let's read 5 one more time, and then we'll go to John, the second chapter. 1 Kings 5, verse 5. And behold, I purpose to build an house unto the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord spake unto David my father, saying, Thy son, whom I will set upon thy throne in thy room, he shall build an house unto my name. See, so Solomon was known for building a house unto the Most High, known as Solomon's temple. Now, how does that link to Christ? Let's go to John, the second chapter. John, the second chapter, the 19th through the 21st verse. John 2, verse 19. Christ answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. Christ makes a claim which almost nobody understands at first. Look at this, brothers and sisters. The text teaches you or shows us that Christ was looking to confuse them on purpose. He stood in front of the physical temple and said, what, brother? Verse 19. John 2 and 19. Christ answered and said unto them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. See, he stood in front of the physical temple and said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up, right? But what we're going to see here, brothers and sisters, he's referencing his future death and resurrection. How do we know? He's not talking about Solomon's temple. Continue. Verse 20, then said the Jews, forty and six years was this temple in building. It took us forty-six years to build this temple. And wilt thou rear it up in three days? And you can build it in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. See, (laughs) Christ's reference was to his future death and resurrection. He said, destroy this temple, my body, and in three days I'll raise it up. So Christ is saying that he's the temple. He was foretelling his death. See that, brothers and sisters? His statement that he would destroy the temple and build it back was not a threat. It was a promise. They didn't understand this, brothers and sisters. Because why? Our people were so carnal. They saw everything through a carnal lens. Everything. And he was looking to confuse them, (laughs) purposely. He wanted them to think that he would, you know, he was saying he would destroy the temple. And guess what, brothers and sisters? They used him saying this in his trial. That he said he was going to tear down the temple. They used this against him in his trial. He knew it, brothers and sisters. This is exactly what he wanted. Why? Because he's showing you that the temple, remember, this temple he's standing in front of is the temple that Solomon built. He's saying, you can tear this down in three days. I'll raise it up. Let us show you. Let's go to Matthew 12 and 1, brother. All of this just links so flawlessly, brothers and sisters. Christ. Christ was so, I mean, he was so educated. He understood the scriptures. Everything he did was meticulous. It was calculated, brothers and sisters. Everything, his entire life was a reenactment. 
Let's read 1 through 6, brother. Matthew 12, verse 1. At that time, Christ went on the Sabbath day through the corn, and his disciples were in hunger, and began to pluck the ears of corn, and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto him, Behold, thy disciples do that which is not lawful to do upon the Sabbath day. But he said unto them, Have ye not read what David did when he was in hunger? And they, and they that were with him. So here it was, brothers and sisters. Here it is, Christ again. He's doing things to get them, to get a response from them so he can teach them, brothers and sisters. Here it was. He was picking corn on the Sabbath day. And they're like, what are you doing? You can't pick corn on the Sabbath day. He said, have you not read what David did? David, when he was hungry on the run, he ate the showbread. Now, once again, brothers and sisters, most Christians don't even know what he's talking about. He said, have you not read what David did? That means Christ was reading the Old Testament. That means that Christ is telling you to read the Old Testament. Do you see this? Have you not read what David did? David was not alive in the New Testament, brothers and sisters. So once again, he's pointing you back to the Old Testament. See, I pull a Christian right here. What is Christ talking about? Have you not read what David did? I ask you, Christian, what did David do? They don't know. Why? Because you don't read the Old Testament. So look at look. listen closely to what Christ is saying here. Matthew 12, verse 3. But he said unto them, have ye not read what David did when he was in hunger and they that were with him? How he entered into the house of God and did eat the showbread. The showbread was only, it was bread that was only for the priests, brothers and sisters. Which was not lawful for him to eat, neither for them which were with him, but only for the priests. See, continue. Or have ye not read in the law? The law, that's the Old Testament. That's the, the first five books of the Bible. Once again, he's inviting you to the law. How that on the Sabbath days, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless. So he's saying, don't you know that the priests are working on the Sabbath? They're teaching. So is that considered work? Verse 6, but I say unto you, that in this place is one greater than the temple. There he is again. <laughs> He's like, listen, I'm greater than Solomon. I'm greater than the temple. I'm greater than Moses. You see this, brothers and sisters? Why is he doing this? It's the same thing he did with Solomon. He's inviting you to go learn about the temple now. See? This is a dramatic reference to the analogy between Christ and the temple. You see this, brothers and sisters? He said, listen, you're talking about, you know, the priest in the temple and the showbread in the temple that was only for priests and all this stuff. Listen, one greater than the temple is here. You don't tell me about the Sabbath. I, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. <laughs> I tell you how to operate on the Sabbath. See, this is why they killed him, brothers and sisters, because Christ didn't play no games. He was direct. He said, listen, there's one greater than this temple, this temple that you hold with such high esteem. You see this? So now he's telling us that somehow we can learn about him from the temple. So now we have to go learn about the temple and see how that points to Christ. Let's go to Exodus 25, brother. Let's go to the Old Testament. We're going to go to Exodus 25 and 8. Exodus 25, 
verse 8. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. What did he say, brother? And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. The tabernacle or, or temple was the place where the presence of God dwelled. The tabernacle was the one that was intense so they could pick it up and move it while they were in the wilderness. The temple was one that was a brick and mortar. You, you didn't move that. So it's representing the same thing. The tabernacle is what we had before the temple. But what was it for, though? Can you read that again? Exodus 25, verse 8. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. See, so the tabernacle or temple was so the Most High could dwell amongst us. And guess what? In Christ, we have the ultimate temple. The presence of God dwelled fully in him. See, so when he said one greater than the temple, the temple represented dwelling, under, um, excuse me, the Most High dwelling amongst man, amongst the children of Israel. That was the whole purpose. He said, let them make me a temple or tabernacle that I may dwell amongst them. So tabernacle means to dwell, brothers and sisters. Let us prove this. Let's go to John 1 and 14, because the tabernacle or the temple was for the presence of God. Let us show you. Christ said one greater than the temple is here. John 1 and 14. John 1 verse 14. And the word was made flesh. And dwelt among us. Now look at that. Remember, <laughs> remember Exodus 25 and 8 said, let him make me a temple or tabernacle that I may dwell amongst them. See, so God said, in order for me to dwell amongst you, you must have a temple or a tabernacle. Christ fulfilled that. Read that one more time, brother. John 1 verse 14. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. See, so the expression which John uses here literally means the Lord tabernacled amongst us. That word dwelt is tabernacle. Tabernacle means to dwell, brothers and sisters. Look it up. Look it up. Look up what tabernacle is uh, in the Hebrew. What's the definition? It means to dwell. In this text, says, and the word was made flesh and tabernacled amongst us. So Christ represented the Most High. See, so this, when Christ was here, that was the Most High dwelling amongst us. Remember his name, Emmanuel? Remember that? It means what? God with us. <laughs> Remember that in the Old Testament? A virgin shall have a son and, you know, call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. So remember, Christ said, I'm greater than the temple. What was the temple for? For the Most High God to dwell amongst us. Christ said, I'm greater than that. Why? Because I was made for God to dwell amongst you. I came in representation of my father. I'm not my father, but I represent my father. Just like if you have a son. Your son represents you. If you and your son have a business together. And you go out of town, what happens? And something needs to be done, your son is going to stand in your place. And everyone's going to respect your son as you, as if he was you. That's how it works, brothers and sisters. So he's not his father, but he represents his father. It tell you that Christ was made flesh and tabernacled or dwelt amongst us. 
See, this is why he said, I'm greater than that temple. Why? Because you created that temple so the Most High could dwell amongst you. He's dwelling amongst you right now through me. This is what Christ was saying. This is why they hated his guts. This is why. Let's go to Galatians 3 and 24, brother. We're going to stay in the New Testament here. Galatians, the third chapter, the 24th verse. Galatians 3, verse 24. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. The law, which is the first five books of Moses, brothers and sisters, was our pedagogue unto Christ. The law communicated the outline of the fulfillment to come in Christ. See, this, everything we've gone through today was coming straight out of the Old Testament. And it said it was given to bring us unto Christ. That's what the whole Old Testament was for, to prepare you for Christ. It was designed to train us to recognize the significance of the Messiah. Christ's fulfillment of Old Testament rituals was not some fortuitous coincidence. And we're going to prove that. Read that one more time, brother. Galatians 3 verse 24, wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. See, so the law was to bring us closer to Christ. See, so we're going to show you something. We're going to show you that Christ's fulfillment of Old Testament rituals was not some fortuitous coincidence. Christ was fulfilling the rituals from the Old Testament. Let's go to Exodus 30 and 20, brother. Exodus, the 30th chapter, the 20th verse. Exodus 30, verse 20. When they go into the tabernacle of the congregation, they shall wash with water that they die not. Or when they come near to the altar to minister, to burn offering made by fire unto the Lord. So they shall wash their hands and their feet. That they die not. So he's saying before you approach the throne, before you make an offering, you have to clean up. If you come if you come, if you approach me and you're not clean, you will die. He said you have to clean your hands and your feet or don't approach me. If you approach me and you're unclean, that will be the last time you approach anything. It was clear. That was the ritual, brothers and sisters. Read that one more time, brother, verse twenty one. Exodus thirty, verse twenty one. So they shall wash their hands and their feet, that they die not. And it shall be a statute forever to them. For how long? Forever to them, even to him and to his seed throughout their generation. So priests would die if they entered the tabernacle dirty. How often do we enter God's house dirty? The priests were to wash and to be clean before they entered the tabernacle, brothers and sisters. Why? So they can be enabled to rightfully enter to worship. You couldn't worship and you were unclean. You don't come up, you don't approach the throne like that. You don't approach the presence of the Most High unclean. You should be dead for that. No respect. So the entire tabernacle, brothers and sisters, pointed to the coming Messiah. Throughout the Bible, water represented cleansing. This is critical, brothers and sisters, because... I think you may have missed it. Remember, Christ said, I'm greater than the tabernacle. Read 20 again, brother, please. Exodus 30, verse 20. 
when they go into the tabernacle of the congregation. Now this is key. When they go into the tabernacle of the congregation, remember Christ said, I am the temple. I am the tabernacle. <laughs> I'm greater than that tabernacle. Christ is, is telling us that. Now link that with this. It says before you go into the tabernacle. When they go into the tabernacle of the congregation, they shall wash with water that they die not. Or when they come near to the altar to minister to burn offering made by fire unto the Lord. So they shall wash their hands and their feet, that they die not. And it shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his seed. For, do, forever, right? Even to him and to his seed throughout their generations. So brothers and sisters, this stand today. You don't come into the Most High's presence unclean. You got to have more respect. If you wouldn't go on a date like that, or you wouldn't go on a, um, you know, if you wouldn't go on a, a date like that or a job interview like that, don't you dare come before the presence of the Most High like that. You see this, brothers and sisters? Do you see? Now, when did Christ fulfill this? Let's go to John 13 and 2, brother. It showed you that they needed to what? It shows you that they needed to wash themselves, cleanse themselves with water before uh, before entering into the tabernacle of the temple. We're going to read John 13 and 2 through 10. John 13 verse 2. And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Christ knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he was come from God and went to God. He riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the, the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Now look at this, brothers and sisters, because remember the, the ritual that we read was that before you could enter into the tabernacle, you had to wash your hands and your feet. You had to be cleansed. And now we're seeing Christ do what? Read verse 5 again, brother. John 13, verse 5. After that, he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the, the towel wherewith he was girded. Continue. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Christ answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now. But thou shalt know hereafter. So he said, you're trying to, Peter, like, you're trying to wash my feet? Christ is like, Peter, you don't know what's going on right now, but you'll know later. See, showing you that the disciples a lot of times didn't even know what was going on. They didn't understand until way later. So don't feel bad that, you, you know, you don't understand everything. Because these disciples didn't understand half of the stuff that was going on, and you know, <laughs> while it was going on. Read 7 one more time, brother. John 13, verse 7. Christ answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. He said, Christ, you will never wash my feet. Christ answered him. What did he say? If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Now remember, Brothers and sisters, Christ washing the disciples' feet is symbolic of the tabernacle washing at the laver. 
As we continue to read, we see Christ clearly communicates several key points in washing his disciples' feet. Read 8 one more time, brother. John 13, verse 8. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Christ answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. This is a direct correlation to the purification at the lava, brothers and sisters, where cleansing was a prerequisite. You had to go to the lava, right, where the basin was, the water, and wash your hands or feet before you came into the tabernacle or you would die. So Christ told Peter, listen, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, I have nothing to do with you. You you can't do this work because why? Christ was fulfilling the Old Testament ritual. Remember, Christ was the tabernacle. <laughs> he represented the tabernacle or rather the tabernacle represented him. He said, I'm greater than the tabernacle. So if you had to be cleansed to approach the tabernacle, he's saying you must be cleansed to approach me. And you do that through water baptism. That's what this represented, brothers and sisters. Read verse 9, please. John 13, verse 9. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. <laughs> what did he say? Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Continue. Christ saith unto him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet. But it's clean every whit. And ye are clean, but not all. He said, ye are clean, but not all. Why? Because he knew that Judas was there. He's saying Judas is unclean. And he knew this at this time. So as we see in the Old Testament, failure of a priest to wash before entering upon any service of the Lord meant death. And that's what Christ was showing. He said, listen, if I don't wash your feet, I have nothing. you have nothing to do with me. Why? Because you couldn't order into you couldn't enter into the, the tabernacle for any worship or service being unclean. See, so Christ didn't break any he didn't break the law. Okay? He didn't break the law. He fulfilled the law. Everything in the Old Testament Christ reenacted on a higher level. Everything. Let's go to Matthew 5 and 17, brother. Matthew, the fifth chapter, the 17th verse. Matthew 5, verse 17. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Here Christ highlights his support for the Mosaic books of the law. Can you read that again, brother? Matthew 5, verse 17. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. See, so we know that the law is the first five books of the Bible. The prophets is known as the Tanakh, which is the Old Testament records like Isaiah, Ezekiel, all those, Micah, Nahum, Amos. See, so here we're seeing that compliance to the Mosaic Covenant has not changed because I've come. This is what he's saying. I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill it. Everything he did was a fulfillment of the Old Testament, brothers and sisters, as we learn today. The new covenant did not negate the need for obedience to God. It did not. And guess what? His phraseology indicates he sensed that 
Some thought he was advocating to eradicate the Old Testament. That's why he said, don't even put it in your mind that I came to do away with the law or the prophets. I didn't come to destroy it. I came to do what was in it. See? You see that, brothers and sisters? Today's lesson was out from the shadows. Well, we went from Old Testament to New Testament, Old Testament to New Testament, Old Testament to New Testament, to show you that everything Christ was doing was written of in the books of Moses. As he said from his own mouth. If you don't believe Moses, how could you believe me? If you don't believe me, how could you believe Moses? We wrote the same things. He said one greater than Moses has come. One greater than the Passover of the Old Testament has come. One greater than Solomon has come. One greater than the temple has come. All of those things were shadows to point you to the truth, which was Christ, brothers and sisters. Today was a higher level learning. And, and you know, everyone likely will not be able to act to, to, to get this. We understand this. Save this, download it, come back to this, you know, in six months from now or, or whenever, you know, you're able to to digest me. This is this is not for everyone at this time, brothers and sisters, but for those who were able to ascertain, I hope this gives you more reverence for the most high. I pray this gives you more reverence unto Christ. I hope this makes worship easy for you. This lesson was aimed at making worship easier for you. Today's lesson, out from the shadows. We want to say, Kwam Yasharala. Kwam Yasharala. Sin no more. Sin no more.